0: So when Jesus says that he's the light of the world in chapter 9, in that account, it's in the context of um, giving an explanation to a miracle that's about to happen. Uh, And Rod mentioned last week that John is the only of the four gospel writers who uses the word sign to describe a miraculous act from Jesus. The others don't use the word sign. And sometimes these signs are accompanied by a declaration that uh, John records from Jesus. And the declaration is, I am something. And the something is usually really significant. But let's just stay with the notion of signs for a a little while. I think it's really appropriate and and it's easy to be impressed, rightly rightly, impressed by these signs from Jesus. Um, What were some of them? Well, healing of people, walking on water, feeding thousands from almost nothing, bringing dead people to life. I mean, these are unequivocally miraculous. These are unequivocally of someone from God. Uh, They're events to celebrate, to marvel at, but they're still just the sign And just to pause for a moment and uh, detour slightly. Some people have actually done this. Some might dream about it or you might need to imagine about it. But just imagine you're doing the big, wonderful road trip around Australia. Perhaps the big lap of our magnificent country. Thanks, Warren. First picture. And you get to Queensland and you gaze in wonder at this. And you get out. And you take selfies of it and you marvel over it and you post them on whatever social media is your thing and then you get back in the car and you drive on neglecting the next one to see this because you don't bother to go and visit the real thing because you've seen the sign or a little bit later on in your trip you're down in Victoria and you finally get to this. You can imagine what I'm about to say. You stop the car, you get out, you photograph the sign but you don't take the turn off and you miss... Oops, you miss all of that but you miss that as well. So the signs are pointers to the the main event, to the real deal and I'd like to just for a moment take a, a closer look at this particular sign from Jesus that we've just had read about Uh, and that's signed, the gifting of sight. Note, it wasn't the restoration of sight, but it was allowing a man to experience it for the very first time in his life. So John not only records what Jesus did, but he gives us kindly considerable detail about the conversation that occurred beforehand with Jesus' disciples and then following with the, the man himself, the recipient of the miracle, and note, he just remains unnamed for the whole account, uh, and then a collection of Pharisees and the man's parents, and then finally was Jesus himself. And it's really illuminating, I think, posing plenty for us to consider. But let's just remind ourselves not that we really need it after that lovely uh, community reading of what actually happened the miraculous sign. So, mud on the guy's eyes. Jesus, uh, walking with his disciples, encounters this guy who is blind, and we're told has been since he was born, and I guess you can only imagine how hampered and compromised his, his daily life was. Uh, we know from verse 8 that not surprisingly, he, given his circumstances, he was a beggar. Did he have any other choice? Um, anyway, Jesus spits on the ground. He creates mud. He puts it on the man's eyes and uh, instructs him to wash it off. In a pool in the pool of Salome. Now that's uh, on the southern outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, Siloam features a couple of times previously in in the Bible, in Scripture. It was built under Hezekiah. It's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. And then Luke records in in his gospel that Siloam is the site of a tower that fell causing the death of numerous people, eighteen people in fact. Um, Well, what does the man say? Sorry, well, the man does as Jesus says and he returns home able to see and as we saw, causes some consternation with his neighbours and he needs to insist that he actually is who he is. And the next thing he knows, it seems his neighbours have brought him along, dragged him willingly, unwillingly, we're not sure, along to front the Pharisees. And the exchange that John records invites us to consider not just hypothetically how we may have responded if we were there at the time, but I think it challenges us now how we respond now to Jesus and what we do with his bold statement that we heard earlier, I am the light of the world. And... Just to go off on another little tangent for a moment or two, can we name all of Jesus' I am statements that John records? There's seven of them, I think, in John. Anybody want to show off and call them out? I am bread of life is one. Good shepherd, two. Way the truth and life, three. True vine is four. Gate for the sheep, five. What was that one? Light of the world, world, six. And Resurrection. resurrection and the life. Well done. Anyway, back to our passage and our sign that Jesus is the light of the world. And let's have a look at it just from three distinct angles tonight. And hopefully we've got eyes to see past the sign and see the person performing the sign. First of all, let's have a look at the response from the Pharisees. Um, here's another slide Weren't they very defensive they were divided what did they say he's a sinner he's not from God what was his sin he wasn't per se healing the guy but he did it on what day he did it on the Sabbath and he broke the Sabbath and what the, the Sabbath law you can't work on the Sabbath what was the work he created mud um, so and that's what they're up in arms about, theoretically. Uh, but some of the, the Pharisees at least recognise that, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they're divided. But unfortunately and interestingly, there seems to be no joy or happiness at all uh, from them for the man that this remarkable turn of events has just, uh, has just taken place. So let's just recognise what Jesus did for what it was. Yes, it's a clear indicator of power and authority and divinity. Nobody else but Jesus could do this. But isn't it also just an act of great kindness? It's completely transformational for the guy. It is freely and lovingly given. And just stop and consider for a moment how you might expect one with ultimate authority and power to act. If you're wanting to announce your presence, if you're wanting to make public your authority, you'd probably do some grand eye-catching gesture. You probably wouldn't go out and just quietly transform the life of one of society's nobodies, somebody marginalised, and then you just quietly slip away. But it seems to be Jesus didn't go for the big, glitzy events. But back to the Pharisees. They were increasingly uh, belligerent, they're aggressive, and contrast theirs and Jesus' actions towards the man. Jesus heals, he enhances life, he allows this guy to be engaged fully in his community. And the Pharisees are the opposite, aren't they? They're angry, they're self-righteous and they exclude. The man is, we hear, thrown out of the temple, Now John doesn't use the word but he was probably excommunicated officially and as such he's excluded from his community. Uh, And that's a big part of life for him. He's excluded from all religious and much of social life which is shared. So Jesus, he loves, he cares, he includes, he broadens his horizons and the Pharisees do exactly the opposite. And um, isn't that an all-too-common tendency? Maybe not just for the Pharisees, but for anybody, maybe us. If we're feeling threatened, it's we want to exclude, we want to divide, we want to separate those that we feel don't understand us or we don't understand them, or maybe threaten us. But it's so contrary to the Gospel, isn't it, that is inviting all in. And now another point to note with the Pharisees, they are the self-proclaimed bastions of of knowledge and truth. Um, They've studied, but then they set about revealing their lack of knowledge about Scripture and their lack of ability to see Jesus for who he really is. And perhaps if they knew Scripture better, perhaps they'd be familiar with Isaiah 29 verse 18 and 35 verse 5 because they specifically predict the restoring of sight as a messianic activity which is to come. And it's ironic, isn't it, as John intends us to plainly notice who's blind, who's really blind, who can recognise the light of the world when he's in front of their nose, the learned ones who have the benefit of a lot of training and physical sight, they're the blind ones, the spiritually blind ones. And now let's just have a look at the, uh, the man's response. We'll just have a look at that next slide. And I think this is at the heart of this passage and it's quite wonderful. It's beautiful because he has an open and receptive heart. And did you notice the way his appreciation uh, of Jesus unfolded and his proclamation of Jesus changed? And it happens quickly and God seems to be obviously working in his life. So here's how he refers to Jesus. Have a look in your Bibles if you like. Verse 11, he's the man, the man who made the mud. Skip on to verse 17. Jesus becomes he's a prophet, and that's probably the most exalted, highest sort of title or term that the man could think of at the moment for who Jesus is. Move on to verse 27. How does the man describe Jesus when he's talking in an increasingly testy exchange with the Pharisees? Well, he says, well, Jesus Jesus becomes one worthy of following. Do you want to follow him, he asks. Do you want to be his disciples? So he's implying Jesus is worthy of following and worthy of having disciples. Verse 33 steps up a notch. He's from God. He must be given what he's just done, figures the man. And then finally in verse 38, and he's face-to-face with Jesus after Jesus has sought him out um, and they have a brief encounter. And what does he say? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. He fully commits and he recognises Jesus as Lord, his Lord. And just to touch on a third aspect of this encounter. I think it raises questions around human character, maybe around our character, and around our collective inclination to look for guilt and to uh, try and attribute blame. Who put that there as you whack your foot on something walking up the hallway you didn't expect to be there? It's not, oh, ouch, it's who put that there? Well, that's what I say anyway. Or, who moved my keys, you know? Well, obviously it wasn't me because I always put them there, so who moved my keys? And if you're anything like me, I find it pretty easy for my default position to be somebody else's fault. I'm looking to blame. And that's on show in this instance here. The man's blind. And to his disciples, who've been with Jesus for a fair while now, We don't know exactly how long, but they've been travelling and living with him and learning from him for a while. In their mind, it's got to be his fault, or maybe his parents' fault, that he is blind. And just like it was incorrectly assumed that those 18 folk that died when the tower fell on them, well, that was due to God's judgment on account of their perceived sin. That's Luke chapter 13, if you want to check that out at some stage. And I wonder, um, does Jesus answer Jar just a little? And he says, The work of God will be displayed in the man's life. And this guy, he will bear witness uh, to Jesus being the light of the world. Now his blindness, and for that matter also Lazarus' death, also recorded in John, elicited a very similar response from Jesus. And it is, God's goodness and glory will be revealed and these people are part of God's good plan. And so now I'd like to uh, just have a look at maybe some of the implications and some of the lessons that we might want to draw from this passage and um, I'd also welcome you sharing observations or questions so long as they're not too tricky at the end. So for starters, I think it's easy to criticise and to belittle the Pharisees. I mean, we, we know we're meant to be critical of them. But isn't it natural and easy to be defensive or aggressive when we feel under threat? Isn't it easy to try and seek to bring down another when we feel like they might be gaining some ascendancy on us and if we're losing control? Now it could have and it should have occurred to the Pharisees Um, that they were able to learn from this incident. But it seems their prejudice, their defensiveness saw them try and discredit the miracle. And they nitpick about the breaking of the Sabbath and they zero in on the guy who they should have been celebrating with and affirming his, uh, his sight, his given sight, his good fortune. Instead, they try and discredit him and the miracle. And... I just wonder if there's times when we maybe respond in a way that isn't completely dissimilar if we feel like we're under threat. Something just to consider. And next slide. Thanks, Warren. Um, While we're examining ourselves, we'll briefly, just let me briefly touch on the issue of can we attribute someone's misfortune to some previous sin? And do we still tend to be inclined to look for someone or something to blame when it's not appropriate. Um, in case you're looking at that slide and you're just wondering what it's about, um, I found it when I read that uh, there's an official worldwide Blame Someone Else Day <laughs> and the next one, in case you want to put it in the diary, is the 13th of January next year. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So how are we... <laughs> um, how are we... Um, Uh, How willing are we, I should say, to uh, believe that God can transform any situation and outwork his good purposes, I wonder? And I think we could spend a long time exploring and unpacking this topic, and we won't now, but hand in hand with that is a question. How willing are we to live with the, sometimes I think it's unanswerable and always difficult question of wider tragedies? Why does suffering impact some people for seemingly no rhyme or reason? And ask ourselves, can we still trust and believe in God's love and trust in his purposes? But back to what we see displayed in the uh, the man that was blind. What about the courage, the resoluteness of him who in the face of a barrage of questioning and ridicule and it became abuse from the powerful the very powerful in his society. Well, what did he do? He didn't back down. He didn't water down his assertions about Jesus. And he saw through the Pharisees uh, and he exposed their duplicity and their hard-heartedness and that was at, I think, considerable social cost. We know he just gained something infinitely more valuable but he paid a social cost for it, for his statements. And maybe it'd be nice to think, we have no idea, it's only speculation that somewhere sort of cowering off to the side uh, were his parents and they were quietly proud of their son because they didn't want to get thrown out of the temple. So I wonder if we can take a leaf out of this guy's book. What's John, sorry, 1 John 2.23 say? No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And I think thankfully for us, most of us at least anyway, um, usually acknowledging Jesus doesn't present a direct threat to our life, our physical life. However, we know it does for many in numerous places around the world today, right now. But nevertheless for us... Um, I think for many of us, there may be a pretty significant relational cost or social cost, maybe even financial if the workplace is involved, if we are open about proclaiming Jesus as our Lord, acknowledging Jesus. And so maybe a question to ask ourselves, like the fellow in John 9, will we freely align ourselves with the light of the world? And I think this encounter and the conversation also really presents us an encouragement to dive deeply and consistently into scripture because, after all, if the uh, Pharisees had supposedly had and did, had and did, then perhaps they would have been more familiar with Isaiah and perhaps they may have uh, recognised Jesus for who he was. And so let's encourage ourselves to really see to help spiritual blindness and I'd just like to wrap up with a question or two is like the case for the man we've been discussing is our heart inclined towards or is it inclined away from Jesus let's pray that it's inclined towards like the guy can we proclaim I believe and if so do we back that up By showing Jesus due reverence, do we worship him? And we could spend another night or another week or another series of talks on what worship actually means and looks like. And we won't spend ages now, but suffice to say that in my view, worship certainly is music and it certainly includes prayer, but there's a whole lot more, isn't there? It's a whole life thing. What's your value? How you spend your time? How you spend your money? What issues matter to you? How you pursue justice? How you respect others, how you respect creation, how you practice hospitality, what you do in stewardship, how you speak, etc., 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 all indicate whether you are worshipping Jesus. And can we heed the signs, like the gifting of sight, and be informed by them? But can we look beyond them and can we fix our eyes on Jesus? And let's remember Jesus the compassionate seeker of the lost or the blind, the restorer or giver of life, the restorer of broken and the damaged, the light of the world, and then to quote Isaiah 43 that was uh, read to us earlier by Belinda, Jesus the great I am, the agent of God's salvation. And can we echo to the great I am, Lord, I believe, as we proceed to live lives of worship.